Vaccine rollout nears the next phase as Pritzker says he's confident that every Illinois resident who wants a vaccine will be able to get one by the end of the year. And Crane's government reporter A.D. Quigg joins the podcast today to talk about why 2021 looks like an important year for the Obama Center in Jackson Park. This could be the year that shovels hit the ground, but this also has to be the year where the Obama Foundation really digs in and says, all right, we're going to live up to what we said we would, and we're going to hire locally, we're going to pay attention to what the community is saying, and we're going to do this all right. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Tuesday, January 12th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg, here to talk about why 2021 looks like it is shaping up to be a very important year for the Obama Center. A.D., tell me about this. So the Obama Presidential Center, back when it was announced in basically 2015, was supposed to open its doors in 2021. But it's been more than five years. Uh, There have been unsuccessful court challenges, a series of pending federal government reviews that are supposed to end in the next few weeks. I'm getting signals from folks in Obama world that this will be the year that shovels hit the ground in Jackson Park. But that's when all this tough stuff begins. So I wanted to write about all of the things that the Obama Foundation had basically promised as part of bringing the presidential center to Chicago. So first they have to raise a ton of money to actually build and operate the thing. They have to bring in more annual visitors than any other presidential center or library uh, has brought in in peak years or consistently. And they have to deliver a lot of big jobs promises to nearby neighborhoods that were pretty skeptical of this coming here because they're so afraid that rising property values will push people out or that basically it won't live up to big promises for jobs. So this could be the year that shovels hit the ground, but this also has to be the year where the Obama Foundation really digs in and says, all right, we're going to live up to what we said we would, uh, and we're going to hire locally, we're going to pay attention to what the community is saying, and we're going to do this all right. So I wanted to write about kind of the big climb they have to make if and when shovels do hit the ground this year. Following on what you said about the number of visitors, why that number? I know that's a goal set forth by them, but but what is the significance of, of that number of visitors per year? They're projecting roughly 700,000. And part of the importance of 700,000 people coming to the Obama Presidential Center is the ripple impacts of people visiting the South Side, spending money, eating at restaurants, perhaps fueling demand for the construction of um, nearby hotels or um, basically like broader economic development for the area. Only one other presidential center has spurred economic development, and that was Bill Clinton's, and it was a specific goal of his. But these are very high numbers uh, for, for presidential attendance. The Tribune did a very good analysis in 2015 of what uh, attendances looked like. And the short version is like it has peaked in years following the deaths of the president that it is dedicated to. And a lot of the big visitor counts are not because of 
historical exhibits about the presidents themselves, but usually something ancillary. So the big attendance here at Reagan's library in 2016 was for a display on the Vatican. And there have been other popular ones at presidential libraries on Walt Disney, for example. So having this many visitors is is part of the promise of spurring economic development. Now, the Obama Foundation has said, we're basically counting on a larger appeal to black visitors, um, citing the popularity of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. and the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. But even the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis has about 250,000 visitors a year. The Obama Presidential Center is different in a lot of ways. It will function as kind of part of the museum campus. Um, I think the tie-in with the Museum of Science and Industry might be helpful to them, but it's unclear. Uh, the initial projections I saw from a UFC commission study was that they could get as many as 800,000 visitors a year, uh, but we'll see. And it's unclear how long that will last. We see, if you look at the tribute analysis that we link to in the story, you see big peak years and then very, very low kind of sustained attendance. And part of that sustained attendance is researchers coming to look at official presidential papers um, and other historical artifacts of the presidency. And Obama's presidential records are going to be largely digital. So we can't count on those researchers to be to be popping through and stopping by. And then a big part of this conversation with this has been about the environmental impact. There, there's many issues, you know, that have been floating around it, but the environmental impact issue has been coming up throughout since this was first announced. Where does that part stand? So there have been a series of court challenges to locating the Presidential Center in Jackson Park, which is a beautiful historic park originally designed by Frederick Law Olmsted about how much parkland would be lost, about what renovations to historical portions of the park, like the women's garden, would look like, how many old-growth trees might be cut down as construction continues. Um, So far, the court challenges have been unsuccessful. Protect Our Parks plans to appeal to the Supreme Court and is trying every venue it has available to them to challenge this, but so far the court has told them they don't have standing. It's going to be not only a, a legal issue potentially in court, but a political issue. You have a lot of people fired up and interested and keeping a very close watch on what happens there. But so far, with no shovels hitting ground, uh, it's not an issue yet. But as soon as they do, I think there's going to be a lot of... uh, I remember very early on, there were pictures of bulldozers taking down some old growth trees and people freaked out. There is also just kind of long-running concerns about private interests taking over public parks. I don't know if that will come up again. That was kind of hashed out early in this process. But the city, the city council, and the city's plan commission have all signed off on this. So on the city side, it's not getting pushback. But I could see continued pushback potentially in the courts from Protect Our Parks and from neighbors who are keeping a very, very close eye on developments there. And then another issue that's kind of swirled around this has been the impact of the neighborhood and for residents in the area. What can you tell me about that? So... Thinking about what I know about what ticks people off and what people go to Alderman about, um, infrastructure changes uh, are expected to cost $174 million. This has been compared to the reshaping of Lakeshore Drive around Soldier Field to kind of create that uh, southern, south-of-the-loop museum campus area in the mid-1990s. So a lot of roads will close. Uh, Cornell from 59th to Hayes, which I have taken a million times coming back from visiting my folks in Indiana. Um, Northbound lanes uh, of Cornell from 67th to 65th. They're going to widen the 59th Street Bridge, 
add a southbound lane uh, to Lakeshore Drive to accommodate all this diverted traffic. Um, very early on, there was a lot of pushback to the closure of Cornell. It's a popular thoroughfare, but some people have argued, hey, we're, we're essentially cutting through the middle of this park, and it makes it less accessible for people um, biking and walking. And if we close this road, we can restore a lot of this to strictly parkland or, or bike and walkable area. There's going to be underpasses constructed, sidewalks, bike lanes, a 5,000 square foot Chicago Public Library branch is going to be built there. Then there's also just the height of the tower, which a few people are taking issue with. It would be one of the tallest structures in that area. But on the flip side, there is hope that this could lead to economic development on a lot of previously popular retail corridors, perhaps 63rd, perhaps 71st, perhaps Stony Island. The local alderman there, Leslie Hairston, uh, says, you know, we've been waiting for this specific development for five years, but this side of town, it's just slower. It's slower for development to come to the south side. So this is very much due. Um, The other local alderman there, Alderman Jeanette Taylor, is very active with the movement for a, a community benefits agreement with the Obama Foundation to say, you know, Let's say this is a great success. Um, We're already seeing housing prices increase in Woodlawn. People that live here are very worried about getting pushed out in one way or another because of surging demand in this area. So there's going to be that kind of flip side demand that we do want economic development, but we don't want the people that lived here, that have lived here for a long time to get pushed out. And we want it to continue to be affordable. So it's just a lot of stuff that the Obama Foundation is going to have to wrangle with. Luckily for them, or not luckily, but probably very intentionally planned, they brought on a couple of people who are uh, very good at planning, understand what ticks off local constituents, and know the city uh, very well. Lori Healy, who used to be um, uh, in the Daily and Emanuel administrations, and uh, Valerie Jarrett, who's a longtime Obama advisor. Uh, Both of them have been brought onto the Obama Foundation permanently as this looks to be kicked off. So local aldermen are kind of hopeful that, you know, these are locals, these people know stuff, hopefully they will make this as smooth a process as possible. So as things stand right now, what kind of timeline are we potentially looking at? And what what are the milestones that we might expect to see in the first half of the year? So we need to wait for this NEPA review to conclude that's one of the federal reviews, and then we could start seeing things move. Um, the, the next thing I would look for after that is fundraising from the Obama Foundation. This thing is going to cost uh, $500 million to build. Um, in tax filings, the foundation has already reported raising $550 million in the past four years or so. Um, I would suspect, like many other nonprofits, they've had a difficult year fundraising due to COVID. And as a political nonprofit, having a tough time attracting money away from the most recent election. People that do want to get involved in democratic politics are not looking at presidential centers. They're looking at elections. I would expect once those kind of last federal hurdles are cleared, next we would see fundraising, and then we would start to hear uh, from the Chicago Department of Transportation about road changes taking place. But I don't think we're going to see like massive groundbreaking ceremony too soon. Uh, I think they might want to get a few more T's crossed, I's dotted, and maybe a brighter light at the end of the tunnel on COVID before they get things started. But at the same time, I could see them saying, we want to get this thing started. We want to help create these 5,000 construction jobs on the South Side. Let's get going now. But first, before anything, we have to wait for that that NEPA review to finish. 
All right. Well, we will be turning to you for the latest. Thanks so much for taking time to chat today, AD. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Of course. Coming up, Advocate Aurora Health System curbs their ambitious revenue goal. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Gu. Some local health departments are moving quickly through the first phase of the state's vaccine rollout and will soon be able to offer COVID-19 shots to the next group of vaccine-eligible citizens, that group being more seniors and essential workers. The first phase calls for vaccinating health care workers as well as long-term care facility residents as well as other staff members. Governor J.B. Pritzker said in a briefing this week that departments that have finished the first round can start offering shots to people covered under Phase 1B, such as first responders, sheltered population, and people 65 and older. He also said he's confident that everyone who wants a vaccine will be able to get one by the end of the year. But with more than 3 million Illinois residents covered under Phase 1B, the round is expected to take many weeks to complete, he said. Meanwhile, as health officials and local health care workers work to vaccinate residents against the virus, they're also treating COVID-19 patients and monitoring for a new variant that reportedly spreads more easily. Illinois Department of Public Health Director Dr. Ngoze Ezeke said during the briefing that if the variant isn't here yet, it's only a matter of time until it is, adding that she expects the new COVID variant to become the dominant strain over time, possibly as early as March. She added, quote, the mitigations we're doing now or not doing will potentially result in more cases, which inevitably means more hospitalizations. A Chicago pension bill that flailed last spring is now moving toward final passage after getting approval from the Illinois Senate over the objections of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration. The state Senate voted 37 to 14 this week to double the cost of living adjustments for a subset of roughly 2,200 firefighters and sent the measure on to Governor Pritzker's desk for the final okay. Supporters say that the change would help Chicago firefighters get the same benefits as others in the state, but the city is opposed, saying it would, quote, cost tax taxpayers 18 to 30 million per year. A mayoral spokesperson said the measure would, quote, pass on a massive unfunded mandate to the taxpayers of Chicago at a time when there are no extra funds to cover this new obligation. The bill's sponsor, Senator Rob Martwick, said during debate that the legislation only makes official an existing wink and nod city practice. He said, quote, this bill makes the law reflect what the actual practice is. And I'd suggest if what we're trying to do is achieve pension stability, that the first thing you ought to do is make finances transparent, said. Find more reporting on this story as well as many others at chicagobusiness.com. Snack maker Utz Brands will pay $25 million for the trademark and other assets related to Chicago brand Vintners. The deal will give Pennsylvania-based Utz a greater foothold in the Chicago market as snack food sales continue to soar amid the ongoing pandemic. A subsidiary of Utz is also acquiring the assets from California-based Snack King, which bought Vintners about nine years ago for an undisclosed amount. Vintners products include potato chips, corn snacks, cheese snacks, and popcorn. The C.J. Vintner company got its start in 1926 as a chain of shops on the south side that sold candy, magazines, and other items, and according to a release, has a strong distribution network throughout the Midwest. According to data from analytics firm IRI that was cited in the news release, Chicago is the fourth 
fourth largest salty snack market in the United States. As of the end of November, annual local retail sales of such snacks were about $688 million, up 9% year over year. With the deal, which is expected to close next month, Utz plans to move manufacturing of most of Vintner's products to its own plants. That according to the release. Citing the COVID-19 pandemic as the reason, Advocate Aurora Health said it won't meet its rather ambitious goal of more than doubling the health system's revenue by 2025. CEO Jim Skogsberg said, our focus, our direction, has not changed, adding, obviously, we've been slowed down. He said he believes the pandemic has underscored the need for scale, which he says the health system will continue to pursue with like-minded organizations interested in value-based care. Advocate Aurora, based in both Milwaukee and Downers Grove, recently scrapped plans to merge with Michigan's Beaumont Health, which would have created a 34-hospital and $17 billion system. Advocate Aurora's CFO noted that the pandemic has lowered the health system's operating cash flow from $930 million in the third quarter of 2019, which is nearly a 10% margin, to $554 million in the third quarter of 2020, which is just below a 6% margin. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.